welcome you here this morning, and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture now and turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 12 and 13. Uh, We've been working through Romans 8 uh, for the last several weeks, and I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 1, and then we'll focus our attention on verses 12 and 13. If you're using one of the Bibles that... uh, we provide for you, you'll find our passage on page 800, or 944, 944. So Romans chapter 8, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. This is God's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this glorious chapter that is so filled with the hope of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that now by the Spirit that you have promised to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would speak to us through your Word. We pray, Father, that you would challenge us and convict us. We pray that you would comfort and encourage us. We pray that you would strengthen and renew and refresh us by your word. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Stuart Briscoe was a well-known British preacher who died on August 3rd, 2022. And as a young man, Briscoe was drafted into the Royal Marines during the Korean War. His sergeant major was a particularly demanding and harsh figure, 
And Briscoe really didn't realize the grip that his sergeant major had on him until he was actually released from the Royal Marines. You see, soon after Briscoe's release from the Marines, he was enjoying his newfound freedom, and he was strolling along with his shoulders slouched over, his hands in his pockets, and he was whistling a tune. And as he was doing so, he saw his sergeant major approaching him. And instinctively, he started to stiffen up. He started to pull his shoulders back. He stopped whistling. But then he remembered, I no longer owe the sergeant major or the Royal Marines my obedience. My obligations have been met in full. I'm no longer under their command. I no longer am in their debt. And so Briscoe recalls that he began to relax, and he casually strolled by his former sergeant major, enjoying his newfound freedom. Briscoe's experience there illustrates the new relationship that Christians have with sin and the flesh. As Paul has been teaching us in Romans chapter 6 through 8, at one time we were enslaved to sin. At one time, we were in bondage to sin. At one time, we were under sin's dominion. At one time, we were indebted to sin. But in Christ Jesus, we have been set free from sin. In our text this morning, in verses 12 and 13, Paul returns to this freedom. And Paul reminds us in verse 12 that we are not debtors to the flesh. And then in verse 13, he reveals the evidence of our freedom. And so what I want us to see in our text this morning is that Christians are not debtors to the flesh. And we know this because by God's Spirit, Christians kill the flesh in order that they might experience life. So this is our outline this morning. Verse 12, you are not debtors to the flesh. That's our first point. Verse 12, you are not debtors to the flesh. And secondly, verse 13, the basis of your freedom. The basis of your freedom. So let's look first of all at verse 12. Look there at verse 12 and we see that you are not debtors to the flesh. Paul writes, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now you notice that verse 12 begins with those two words, so then. And those two words tie verse 12 to what Paul has already said in verses 1 through 11. So if we just scan through verses 1 through 11 quickly, we see several things. In verse 3, we learn that at the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sin, and thereby God condemns sin in the flesh. In verse 4, we see that God has granted us His Holy Spirit so that we no longer walk according to the flesh but we walk according to the Spirit. In verse 9, Paul assures believers that we are not in the flesh, but we are in the Spirit. In verse 10, Paul declares that we know life now because Christ and the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. In verse 11, Paul proclaims that we will know eternal life in the future because God's Spirit, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, will give life to our mortal bodies. And now in chapter 8, verse 12, given all that he has said in verses 1 through 11, he says, So then, as a result, 
brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. In other words, what Paul is saying is you're not under obligation to serve the flesh because you're no longer in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. You no longer are in bondage to the death of the flesh, but you have been given the Spirit of life who grants you spiritual life now and the promise of eternal life forever. So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh. Listen to the way John Piper states it. He writes, quote, You don't owe the flesh anything but enmity and war. It's been trying to kill you since the day you were born. Don't join forces with your enemy and pay for your own destruction by giving in to the flesh. You are not a debtor to the flesh. End of quote. This is the truth that Paul is conveying to us here in these verses. You don't owe the flesh anything. We considered this truth actually as we were walking through Romans chapter 6, in particular the latter part of Romans chapter 6. And as we were thinking about this dynamic, this reality, we we thought about the fact, you know, could you imagine if you were to pay off your car loan, but you continued to make payments to the bank? Could you imagine if you finally finished paying off your student loans, but you decided to still send in a check every month? Can you imagine if after 30 years you finally made your final mortgage payment on your house? but you continued to allow your lender to draft money from your bank account each month. See, what Paul is saying is, then why, why do we who are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit, why would we choose to continue to make payments to our flesh? Paul says, you've been set free from the flesh. And in many ways, what Paul is doing here in these verses, he's grabbing us by the shoulders and he's looking us in the eyes with love and with conviction. And he's saying, you are no longer a slave to the flesh. You don't have to keep paying your dues to sin. You are free and therefore walk by faith and obedience in your new freedom in Christ. Paul declares here in verse 12, first of all, that we are not debtors to the flesh. Secondly, though, in verse 13, we see that Paul goes on to explain the basis for our freedom. The basis for our freedom. Look there in verse 13, and we read these words. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you notice verse 13 begins there with the word for, or it could be translated because. And so what's happening here in verse 13, you kind of follow this carefully, but in verse 13 what's happening here is Paul is explaining why verse 12 is true. So notice this. In verse 12 Paul states, we are not debtors to live according to the flesh. Now how do we know that? Verse 13, for... Or because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, of course, based on everything that Paul has already said in his letter to the church in Rome, we know that the Christians in Rome possess the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life. And we know that those who have been given the Spirit of life will not choose the flesh 
and the death that the flesh ensures, that would be a gross contradiction. The idea is, how could they possess the spirit of life and at the same time choose the flesh and death that comes with the flesh? That would be foolish. That would be inconsistent. It would be preposterous. Therefore, the Roman Christians can be assured that they are not debtors to the flesh because they possess the spirit of life, and those who possess the spirit of life will not choose the flesh and death, but rather they will put to death the deeds of the body so that they might live. This is who they are. They are in the spirit. Now notice the basis for this freedom. This, this is what Paul is getting at. This is the principle that he's really laying out here in verse 13. There is a kind of life that leads to death, and there is a kind of death that leads to life. And those who possess the spirit of life will choose to put to death the deeds of the body and live. It's who they are. Now, with that in mind, I want us to consider both of these phrases. There's two phrases here in verse 13. I want us to look at them more carefully now. Look there in verse 13, the first phrase. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now here we need to recognize in verse 13 that this is a real warning for all of us. Sin leads to death. It leads to death now and it especially leads to death in the life to come. And we know that sin is so destructive. We witness it all around us all the time. Sin can break our spirits Sin can harden our consciences. Sin can rob us of joy. Sin can end our relationships. It can divide our families. Sin can ruin our finances. It can split our church. It can corrupt our culture. It can topple nations. And ultimately, it destroys souls. And the more we live according to the flesh the more death spreads in our souls and in our lives. Sin in this way is like kudzu. You know what kudzu is? It's especially prolific in this part of the world. You've seen it when you're driving down the interstate and you see the uh, green foliage that covers the trees and the, and the bushes, right? It canvases it. Kudzu is an invasive, this is according to Wikipedia, Kudzu is an invasive plant species in the United States. It was introduced from Asia with devastating environmental consequences, earning it, listen to this, quote, the, earning this nickname, quote, the vine that ate the south, end of quote. Sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? It was actually introduced to the southeast, innocently enough, in 1833 at the New Orleans Exposition, it was marketed as an ornamental plant to be used to shade porches. Seems innocent enough, right? Ever since, it has been spreading rapidly in the southern United States, easily outpacing the use of herbicide spraying and mowing to kill it. Eventually, kudzu smothers the trees and vegetation it covers, which leads to the death and the trees and the vegetation. My friend, sin works in a similar way in our lives. 
We've probably experienced this at some level in our lives. We've witnessed it in the lives of others. We may permit sin to enter into our minds or into our hearts for what seems initially to be innocent, maybe practical or even pragmatic reasons. We might think to ourselves, oh, it's not that big a deal. It won't hurt anyone. I've got this under control. It'll just provide a little bit of a shade, a little bit of comfort, a little bit of peace for a time. But listen, my friends, sin never minds its own business. Sin is never content to stay in its place. Sin will never keep put or go along quietly. Like kudzu, it multiplies discreetly but rapidly and it is eager in the end to conquer and kill all that it touches. Tragically, some people might seek to make peace with sin, to call truths with sin. We might negotiate with our sin. We might in, in some ways say to our sin, oh, I'll give you a home, I'll, I'll give you a place. If, if you'll treat me right, I'll treat you right. This is your domain. You stay here and no further. Let's shake on it. And you can be assured of this. Sin will shake on it, but sin never keeps its word. It reminds me of Neville Chamberlain. You remember Neville Chamberlain? He was the prime minister of England prior to World War II. He met with Adolf Hitler in Munich, Germany. Hitler had already shown aggression towards Czechoslovakia, and Chamberlain hoped to defuse the crisis. When Chamberlain returned from his meeting with Hitler, he had an agreement in his hand, and he waved it in the air, and he said as he waved this agreement that he had with Hitler in the air, I believe it is peace for our time. And of course, Hitler went on to invade Czechoslovakia and Poland, and a year later, After Chamberlain had signed that agreement, England was forced to enter into the war. Most historians agree that many lives could have been saved and much death avoided had Chamberlain been more discerning. Oh, my friends, never, never, never seek to make peace with your sin. Paul is warning us here that sin is not our ally. It will promise us life, but it will reward us with death. And it will not stop until it destroys our lives. And ultimately, until it damns our souls. Sin, as one author has put it, is like the grave. It is never satisfied. And so Paul warns us here, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Having said that, Paul goes on to make a second statement. And based on this second statement, Paul says, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Therefore, the relationship that Christians have to the flesh and sin is to not make peace with it, but rather to kill it. You see it there in verse 13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will die live. 
1656, John Owen, who is a well-known Christian pastor and theologian from many centuries ago, he wrote a small book on this one verse. The book is entitled The Mortification of Sin. It's a book that I've read several times over the years. This book has been a great help to many people. And so I want us to look now at this verse, and I want us to do so with the help of John Owen. So I'm going to cite his little book several times here. And as we do so, I want us to look here at this verse and consider the what, the how, the when, and the why of mortification. The what, the how, the when, and the why of mortification. And notice here, first of all, the what of mortification. Paul says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, when we use that word mortify, oftentimes in today's vernacular, it's associated with embarrassment or shame. But it's an old way of saying to put to death. And that's, that's the way that John Owens uses that word mortify, to put to death, as Paul says here in our text. Listen to Owens' definition of mortification. He writes, quote, To mortify, or as in the original, if you put to death, it is a mortification metaphorical expression taken from the putting of any living thing to death to kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all his strength vigor and power so that he cannot act exert or put forth any proper actings of his own so it is in this case and dwelling sin is compared to a person, a living person, called the old man, with his faculties and properties, his wisdom, craft, subtlety, strength. This, says the apostle, must be killed, put to death, mortified. That is, it must have its power, life, vigor, and strength to produce its effects taken away by the Spirit. End of quote. So this is what Paul means when he says to put to death the deeds of the body. It's to kill it. It's to rob it of its strength, its vigor, its energy, its effort. And where would Paul get such an idea? We might think to ourselves, was well, Paul going too far? Is Paul being too extreme? Of course, Paul got this idea from Jesus himself, Right? Do you remember Jesus' words to His disciples in Mark chapter 8? When Jesus calls the crowd and His disciples to Himself, and He says, if anyone would come after Me, let him take up his cross, an instrument of death and execution, and let him follow Me. Forever who will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, who lays down his life, who dies... He will save it. Listen to the way Jesus stated this principle in Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 to 30. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 to 30, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
Do you see what the Lord Jesus is saying here? Of course, he's not asking us to literally gouge our eye out or cut off our hand, but he's using hyperbolic language here to convey how serious we must take our own sin, how sin wants to kill us, and unless we kill it, it will be killing us. And the original language, the word here that Paul used for to put to death is actually the word thanatao. It's the same word from which Thanos, the the villain in the Avengers, gets his name. Do you know the story of the Avengers, the movie series? Thanos is the personification of death and oblivion. He gets his name from this Greek word that Paul is using here. And what does Thanos choose to do in the movie? What is his kind of ultimate goal? At the end of the movie, Thanos chooses to kill half of all life in the universe. But listen, my friends. When Paul says to put to death the deeds of the body, he doesn't just mean to mortify half of our sins or the majority of our sins. He means to go to war and to mortify, to put to death all of our sin. In this sense, when it comes to our own sins, we are not to be as merciful as Thanos. Although we will never be perfect in this life, our intention must be to root out and destroy and to kill all sin. This is the what of mortification. It is to put to death our sin. That's what it means to mortify the flesh. Let us consider also how do we accomplish this, the how of mortification. How are we to put to death our sin? Well, we have work to do. This is not a passive. This is not a passive act. Notice Paul says there in verse 13, if you put to death the deeds of the flesh. So this is not an approach to the Christian life of let go and let God. No, we have work to do. We are to exert ourselves. We are to put forth effort. And yet we also see at the same time that our work is enabled and it is empowered by the work of God. He says, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. So in this sense, it is our work and it is the work of God as we rely upon God and His grace and His Spirit. Paul often speaks this way about his own ministry and about the Christian life. So later in Romans chapter 15, verse 18, referring to his own ministry, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Or Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Or more to the point of what we're speaking about this morning, our sanctification and the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul has to say in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. You are to do this. Be active. Exert energy. Go for it. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You will work as God works in you. So how are we to do this? We act, we mortify, we put to death the deeds of the body, we kill 
as the Spirit enables and empowers us to do so. And one more thing I'll say on this point. There does seem to be here, and this is vital for us to see, there does seem to be here a connection between what Paul is speaking of here in Romans 8 and putting to death the deeds of the body and Paul's description of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Do you remember Paul describes the armor of God in Ephesians 6, the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the belt of truth and feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel and the breastplate of righteousness and of all the pieces of the armor of God, there is one offensive weapon. Do you remember what it is? You can say it. What is it? The sword of the Spirit. Right? Which is, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, the Word of God. And in all things, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And what is the purpose of a sword? The purpose of a sword is to kill. And so when Paul tells us here, by the Spirit, put to death, mortify, kill the deeds of the flesh, how are we to kill it? How are we to put it to death? By the sword of the Spirit which slays. And we see in the Scriptures that this is further confirmed because in the example of the Lord Jesus when He's in the wilderness and the Satan tempts Him three times, comes to Him again and again and again. How does Jesus respond? On every single occasion, it is written, it is written, it is written. He takes up the sword of the Spirit and He slays Satan with the Word of God. We are to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the sword of the Spirit. And this means, my friends, that we must read God's Word. We must meditate on His Word. We must hide His Word in our hearts. We must pray His Word because it is the only way that we will slay Satan and the flesh is by the sword of the Spirit. So the word of mortification is, is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what it means to mortify. The how is in God's strength and by His power, by His Spirit, in particular the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Third, the win of mortification. The win of mortification. When should we be involved in this activity? Well, notice there in verse 13, Paul says, For if you live... According to the flesh you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, the first occasion of live there in verse 13 is in the present tense. If you live according to the flesh. And the present tense oftentimes conveys this idea of continuous action. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's talking about a life that is characterized by this type of activity. It's not someone who just who sins sometimes or is battling with their sin and... and, and and yet gives in, but repents and is turning and is mortifying their sin. It's someone who is living according to the flesh. They've given themselves over to the flesh. They've yielded themselves to the flesh. They live a life characterized by the flesh. They will die. But those who put to death, and this also is in the present tense, those who put to death, conveying this idea of continuous, ongoing action, the deeds of the body, they will live. Now, of course, that battle is going on and they're struggling and they're wrestling and they put it to death and then it may come back and they put it to death again. 
there's this ongoing activity of putting to death. So when are we to engage in the activity of mortification? Always. Always. In this life, sin will never cease to be our enemy. It will never sleep. It will never stop plotting and scheming and devising how it might destroy you and your life and your livelihood and your ministry and your church. Sin never takes a day off. And so as John Owens warns, quote, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And here is the most famous line from his little book, The Mortification of Sin. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. End of quote. He goes on to write, quote, Sin is always acting, always conceiving, and always seducing and tempting who can say that he has ever had anything to do with God or for which or for God which indwelling sin has not tried to corrupt this battle will last more or less all your days if sin is always acting we are in trouble if we are not always mortifying he that stands still and allows his enemies to exert double blows upon him without any resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the end if sin is subtle watchful strong and always at work in the business of killing our souls and we are slothful, negligent, and foolish in this battle, can we expect a favorable outcome? There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon. It will always be so while we live in this world. Sin will not spare one day. There is no safety but in a constant warfare for those who desire deliverance from sin's perplexing rebellion, end of quote. When should we mortify? We should mortify sin consistently, constantly, day and night, for sin never sleeps. So that's the what of mortification, the how of mortification, the when of mortification, fourth and finally the why of mortification. Now notice this. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why do we mortify the deeds of the body? Because we want to live. We want life. Is that what you want this morning? I mean, can you argue with the Apostle Paul and what he has said here? Do you doubt what he is claiming? That sin leads to death. We witness it all around us every day. We've experienced it in our own lives. Why would we doubt what he is saying when we have experienced it and tasted it for ourselves? But then Paul goes on to say, if you don't want death and you want life, mortify the flesh. Because faith and obedience leads to life, and we want life. And God is promising us life. We want spiritual life. John Owen says, quote, The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. End of quote. And that is so true. 
You know, the Christian cannot be happy while willfully and consistently giving themselves to sin. It's impossible. That's part of what it means to be in the Spirit. Our desires have changed. Your heart and my heart is like a garden. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that if you will pull the weeds and kill the insects and tear out the thorns, then the garden will blossom and it will thrive and it will flourish. And my friends, if you go to pulling out the pride and killing the lust and tearing out the bitterness and rooting out the envy in your heart, your heart will come to life. And Jesus will be more precious and more real and more glorious to you than He has been before. We want spiritual life. That's why we mortify the deeds of the flesh. We want fruitful lives. We want lives that count for eternity. We want lives that that give life to other people, right? And the more we mortify the flesh and walk closely with the Lord, the more we will experience the presence and power of God in our lives, which will then be a source of life to others. I'm reminded of the words of John Wesley when he said, quote, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon earth. End of quote. Do you want a life that counts? A life that's a blessing to others? A life that gives life to others? Be mortifying the deeds of the body and living by faith in the Spirit. And finally, my friends, and I believe this is ultimately what Paul is getting at here, we want eternal life. We do not earn eternal life by dying to the flesh. We need to understand that. Rather, when we die to the flesh, it is evidence that we've been united to Christ by faith. We've been united to Christ who died in the flesh to take the full punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven of the guilt of sin and freed from the power of sin. Remember the promise of Romans chapter 6, verse 23? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And what Paul has been teaching us all through Romans 6 through 8 is that through faith in Jesus and union with his death and resurrection, our relationship to sin has forever changed. Remember, we're free from sin. We're free from the power of sin, the dominion of sin. So the relationship that we have with sin has forever changed. The guilt of sin has been forgiven. The penalty of sin has been canceled. The power of sin has been broken. The desire for sin in our lives has been amended. The practice of sin is being mortified. And for those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus, one day sin will forever be eradicated and we will know life, eternal life. We will only know life forever and ever and ever. So then, brothers, we are not dead, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, You put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. Amen.
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for the truthfulness and the clarity of your word. Sin would seek to deceive us and destroy us. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word reveals the lie of sin, exposes the deceitfulness of sin, declares to us the truth, and warns us of the danger of sin. Lord, may we not recoil at that message. May we not reject it. May we not resist it. But, Father, may we receive it with gratitude. And Father, as we receive that message, we pray then that we would not despair, but Lord, that we would find great hope and joy in the promise of the gospel. That although sin leads to death, there is true life in Jesus. We thank you for his death and resurrection on the cross, which we will celebrate in just a few moments here as we take communion. And Lord, we pray that as the Lord Jesus has gone to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, That, Lord, we would see in his example, in his death, and in his resurrection, a pattern of life for us to follow. That we who have received the free gift of his salvation and received his forgiveness and mercy and grace, that we now would follow his example. And we would live lives of dying to sin, that we might live for you. Lord, help us to do so by the power of your Spirit, by the, by the sword of the Spirit, by your Word. And Lord, we pray that we would know life, true life, now and life to come, spiritual life, fruitful life, eternal life. Lord, pour out your Spirit upon us that we might walk in the life that you have granted to us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.